0: Well, it is good to be back with you again today, and uh, excited to be able to share with you. Last week, I had the opportunity to talk about marriage. This week, we're going to talk about parenting, and I'm uh, just as overwhelmed as I was last week. What do you say in 30 minutes about parenting that's going to make a change or a difference in someone's life? You know, it's, it's, it's that, uh, that struggle of trying to put that all together. Just real quick, Debbie and I have been married for th- 37 years next week we celebrate our uh, 37th. That brings tears, you know, (laughs) just like, wow, you know, if you were to journey with me, uh, what those 37 years have been like. And then uh, we have four adult children, three are married, and one uh, is single, and uh, we have 11 grandchildren. And I do take some pride in that, but it's just so much fun to have 11 grandchildren to invest our lives in. But I will tell you, that parenting is the hardest thing I have ever done in my entire life. I had one girl and three boys, and, and each child is so different, and the way that you respond to them, the way you work with them, uh, their personalities, just everything about them is so different. And even today is, is grown children. Now, I've already been hit by several who have said, well, today is not for me because I'm done parenting. And I would just say to you, no matter wh- where you're at, if you're a child here, You may not be a parent, someday you may be a parent, but everything I have to say today impacts you. You may be a grandparent here today, and everything I say here impacts you as well, because you hopefully are not done parenting. Now, as having adult children, they are not interested in me forcing my view and my way into their life, but I would tell you that since they turned 21... I've done probably more significant parenting in their lives because they've come back and said, Dad, Mom, what would you do? How would you handle? They're dealing with real life. And my favorite has been as soon as they started having children. Now we weren't so bad as they thought we were, right? And so there's an opportunity now to, to continue to invest. I was out walking yesterday uh, uh, in my neighborhood, and my son drives by. I'm like, dude, what are you doing? You know, and and he saw me, and he wanted me to get in the truck with him and go with him, and he had questions, and he, and we're parenting. We're still in the midst of parenting, and I love that, the, the ability to invest in our children and our grandchildren. But parenting is hard, and the enemy hates families. He is on the attack against families. He wants only destruction for you and for your children. And, and, and so that responsibility and that privilege weighs heavy on me and weighs heavy on you. Uh, our, our, our society has so influenced parenting, uh, whether it's from the, the news media, the secular education, from modern psychology. Uh, the attacks on the family are multi- come from multiple directions. And, and it's no longer even hidden, the agenda against the family. Liberal media... The, the the TV shows, you know, you can't have a movie that doesn't have a worldview behind it. There's always a worldview that drives whatever that movie is. That entertainment has a worldview. And it's finding its way into the church today. So this morning, with what time I have now, I'm just going to warn you, if you were here last week, I didn't go as long as I could have gone. So this week I'm going to go maybe a little bit longer. So bear with me. I know we have kids in here. Just let them wiggle and we'll be fine as we do that. But this morning, I want to give you a clear sense of where you're at spiritually, where you're at spiritually. And then I want you to see that the choices that you have made and the choices that you will make, how that will impact your marriage and your children. And the decisions that you will make, that will impact their future as well. And so this morning, I'm going to uh, use another illustration because I'm just a visual person. And it's helpful for me when I see something visual. And I'm going to use three different chairs here. And I know it's a little bit harder for some of you over there, but trust me, there's three chairs over here. And I want to use these three chairs as a way to illustrate, if you will, the concept this morning. See, because what you will see is that each one of us sit in one of these chairs today. And so we're going to talk about how and where you might sit in those chairs see this whole concept for me of parenting began when I was uh, in my teenage years I remember uh, going to my mom and and I would watch and I would look at the pastor's kids and now having pastor's kids I know that they're under a little bit more of a microscope right because the pastor must be perfect and his kids must be perfect too right it's not true but we live in a glass house and I would look at the pastor's kids and I would see some pastor's kids that were an absolute mess. Rebellious. I mean, uh, just as a teenager, I could see, wow, uh, they're way off. And then there were other parents, there were, uh, other pastor's kids, and you go, man, they seem to have a heart for God. They seem to be moving in the right direction. And as a kid, I remember struggling with that because even myself, I didn't want that child that was going to go the other way. And so I'd, add, I'd wrestle with my mom. Well, is it free will, free choice? What, you know, how, how, what's it, what's the play there? Uh, Adam, Adam sinned against God. I mean, he rebelled against God. What's going on in that relationship? Were there too many rules? Were they too harsh? Were they too easy? What is the magic formula that might produce the kind of kids that we want to see? One of the things that would scare me the most as a parent is to have one of my children say they hate me and they hate my God. Nothing terrifies me more. Now, when they were little, they'd say, Daddy, I hate you. Daddy, I don't love you. And it's like, hey, get over it. You'll be all right. Don't let them freak you out with that. You know, it's just manipulation, all right? But when your child says, I hate God and I hate you, ah, that's just a horrible fear for me in my life. I wonder why. Why institutions like Yale and Harvard and Princeton and different Bible schools that started off well seemed to slide into liberalism and humanism. And today in some of those universities, if you carried a Bible into school, you would be ridiculed and you would be considered to be uh, intolerant. We see that with mainline denominations as well. Mainline denominations, conservative Bible teaching congregations that were teaching the Bible and over time they have slid to where nobody even carries a Bible anymore. They're not really interested in what the Bible has to say. They're just kind of going along and doing the religious thing. There really isn't much difference between the church and what they believe in the world. You see this spiritual slide, this this from generation to generation. We see it in Scripture. If you turn with me to Joshua 24. Joshua 24, we're going to take a look at it, several different passages. So if you have your Bible, we're going to be turning several places. But in Joshua 24, we see here is that Joshua was a man who rose up in the ranks as a slave. He became a servant of Moses. He was a spy when they went to go look in on the land of Canaan. He became a general for the conquest that was to take place and a national leader. And he's called the, le- the elders together, the, the nation together. And in verse 14 Joshua 24:14 he says this Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth and put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river in uh, and in Egypt and serve the Lord if it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord choose for yourselves today whom you will serve whether the gods which your forefathers served which were beyond the river Or the gods of the Amorites, whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, I will serve the Lord. See, Joshua was a first chair, if you will. He was a first chair Christian, a first chair believer. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And then you move on a little bit more and... and, uh, Uh, Joshua's coming to the end of his life. Joshua 24, 31. And we look at the elders, the next generation, and we see Israel had served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who survived Joshua and had known the deeds of the Lord, which he had done for Israel. So they were doing well. And then we kind of progress a little bit further and we move into Judges. Flip over just a few more pages over to Judges chapter 1, verse 27. And then we see this. But Manasseh did not drive out the people and their surrounding settlements and for the Canaanites who who, uh, were determined to live in that land. When Israel became strong, they pressed the Canaanites into force, but never drove them out of the land. See, what you see as we move from Joshua, the first chair, to the elders. And they never did what God called them to do to drive out all the inhabitants of the land. That's second chair. And as a result of that, they intermingled with with the Canaanites and they suffered greatly as a result of that. In Judges 2, 3, he goes on, he says, But you have not obeyed me. What is this that you have done? Therefore I also say, said, I will not drive them out before you, but they will become your thorns in your side, and their gods will be a snare to you. Don't be fooled. Don't be deceived. Incomplete obedience is disobedience. Kids, did you hear me? Partial obedience is disobedience. Then we move to Judges 2.10. After that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation grew up who neither knew the Lord nor what He had done for Israel they neither knew the Lord nor what He had done for Israel. Down here to the third chair. See, Joshua knew the Lord and knew the works of the Lord. And he said, as for me and my house, I will, we will follow the Lord. And the elders didn't obey. They didn't follow through all the way. And now we're down to the grandchildren, the children. They neither knew the Lord nor about the Lord. Does it sound like our society today? If you're dealing with anybody who's under 30 who's not churched, they don't even know the the stories of the Bible anymore. We've fallen a great way. What chair do you sit in? see they neither knew the works and they didn't even know the lord now, i want to give you a couple of things and i'm going to use a cheat sheet because i'm getting older but i just want to i want to put a couple of words on these chairs for you and as i'm doing that i want you to see where do you sit today on in these chairs and in the first chair i want you to see here is that this chair represents commitment commitment this chair here represents compromise and this chair leads to conflict another way you can look at this is is that the first chair had a first-hand faith it's it's born out of their convictions and they know the lord the second one is a second-hand faith i love the story and i don't have time to tell a whole lot of stories but my my, uh, he's the third child, Stephen. He actually went here for a little while. And, and when he came to faith and trusted Christ, we kept talking about baptism and talking about baptism and it's like he wasn't willing to get baptized and just, it wasn't working and I was pushing, you know, you got to get, I want him to be baptized. And he resisted and I backed off. I said, he's not ready. When I baptized him at 18, we gave testimony. Why are you being baptized today? And he said this, he said, if I got baptized before today, it would have been my parents' faith, not my own faith. See, there's a transfer that has to happen, that we go from this this idea of, of knowing God and my first-hand experience with God, that I transfer that back. See, this isn't the first time this has happened. You can see this spiritual slide all over in Scripture. Take David, King David. He inherited a physical kingdom from Saul and he turned it into a spiritual kingdom even though he struggled with sin in his life. But then he has a son, Solomon. You might remember Solomon. Solomon had a, what I would call a half heart for God. He inherited a spiritual kingdom and he turned it into a physical kingdom because he intermarried with the foreign wives and they turned their his heart against God and then you might remember that Solomon had a son Rehoboam the grandson of David and he ruined destroyed the kingdom the slide that you see see first chair believers they know God they know him they're close friends with him Second chair, he's an acquaintance. I kind of know God. I kind of know about him. But third chair, they don't even know God anymore. First chair, believers, they have a relationship with God. There's a vital relationship that they've cultivated over the years, whereas a second chair Christian, it's a responsibility. You know, you just got to go to church, go to church, go to church. You Got to be at church, got to go to church. But it's just a responsibility. Third-chair believers look at that, or third-chair people look at that, and they go, it's just religion. You're just doing religion. I think that's a lot of what happened in COVID. When COVID ended, I'm sorry for bringing up COVID, but I see it again. Uh, Pastors all over the place are asking why the decrease in attendance after COVID was over. And I'm going to tell you that so a lot of that is because the third chair people are looking at the second chair people and they're saying it's just religion. It's not making any big difference in my life today. And we see 20, 30, some churches, 40% didn't return after COVID. Here, first chair believers, Scripture is the center of their life. They mark their life on it. They build their life on what Scripture says. Whereas second-chair Christians, they, they look at and they listen to other Christians and other things and they bring it all together into a melting pot. And by the time they get down to here, they don't even know what they believe anymore. There's no sense of it. See, the first-chair Christian, it's about God. And then me. The second chair Christian is struggles with God, no me, no me, no God, me, me God, me God, God me, me God, me God. When we get to the third chair, it's just me. It's all about me. Life is about me. What can I get? When we talk about suffering, the first chair Christian says, suffering is a part of what God allows me to go through to build my character. He's sovereign and I can trust him. When a second chair Christian goes through suffering, it's like, it's all about my happiness. It's about my happiness. I don't want to suffer because I want to be happy, happy, happy. By the time you get to the third chair, it's like, Hey man, I'll do whatever I have to do not to suffer. I'll do whatever. No suffering for me. In marriage. First chair of marriage, they say it's an unconditional covenant before God and my spouse. Unconditional covenant. In second chair, it's a commitment. You know, as long as it's working for me, you're doing what I need you to do to keep me happy, we're good. When you get to third chair, it's just a legal convenience. Just a legal convenience. When it comes to parenting. Oh, that's right. Today was about parenting, right? But you sit in one of these chairs, right? Because where you sit is going to impact how you parent. See, when it comes to parenting, the, the first chair believer wants to raise godly children. They want to know. Dads, I want to know how do I raise godly children? How do I raise children that aren't going to reject God, who aren't going to reject me, that their faith is going to be the same faith that I have? How do I do that? Third chair, or second chair, they just want to raise good kids, good Christian kids. I just want them to be good, good kids. It's kind of scary. Third chair. They're not even sure they're interested in kids. I want to take you to one more place. Turn with me, if you would, to Revelation. Revelation 3. You're familiar with this passage, but we see this, the three chairs here again. Revelation 3.15 says this. I know your deeds that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth. I, I don't need anything. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in fire, So that you can become rich and white clothes to wear. So that you can cover your shame and nakedness. And sad for your eyes. See, the angel of the Lord is speaking to the church in Laodicea and he's saying, I would rather you be hot or I'd rather you be cold. But you're just lukewarm and that makes me vomit. I didn't say it. It's in the Bible. He says, I'd rather you be cold. I'd rather you be hot. But lukewarm is detestable. Can I say to the dads and moms here today, if your faith is lukewarm, do you realize the impact that has on your kids? If my faith is lukewarm, further and further away from chair one, we go to church, we do all those things, but it's a responsibility. But it doesn't really impact me. Where does that leave your children? Where does it leave them? Because they look at this and they go, it isn't making any difference in your life. Why should it make any difference in my life? See, it used to be the first chair and second chair looked very much alike. It was hard to tell the difference when you went to church. But today, it's getting further and further apart. As a matter of fact, a lot of church goers look over there and they go, man, you guys are crazy. You guys are too serious. You guys do a study guide and then you discuss it and then you preach on it and then you get together and talk about how to apply it. You're crazy. Right? Wrong. I love that. I love what you guys are doing. But see, what's happening today is second chair and first chair are looking an awful lot alike. We look an awful lot alike. But what's happening in our society today, I don't have enough room, but our third chair folks are sliding so far away, so far away, While it poses second chair with them, it's a scary thing. So, does it have to be that way? Are are we destined just to raise kids that are second chair kids or third chair kids? Uh, man, I hope not. That's horrifying thought to me. And I and I'll just stop here. I I know. I know firsthand the guilt of not doing things well. I know the fear of not doing things well. But I also know that God works through and blesses. And so some of you might be here and you might be going, man, he's just guilting me to death. I'm not trying to guilt you at all. I'm trying to encourage you. Because, see, you can be, wherever you're at, whatever mistakes you've made, whatever you, however you've blown it, you can still get back here. Grandma and Grandpa, you still can get back here. There's still time. If you have kids alive, you still have time. If you have grandkids alive, you still have time to be a first chair for them. And if you're over here in the second chair today and you're lukewarm, there's time to move over here. There's time to become first chair. Some of you older students that are in here, you have to decide. Am I going to be first chair, second chair, third chair? Am I going to let society determine what I think and believe and how I act? Or am I going to move and follow the Lord? Because, see, you're a part of this too. There's a natural inclination in each one of you students, in each one of you children, to rebel. It's part of the fall. There's a natural part in there for you to get angry and, 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 and resist your parents. It's part of that. God put them here in your life to bring you here. And they don't do it perfectly. Perfectly. But this is where God wants you to be, is in first chair. So I hope it's not destined that way. Matter of fact, I see an an illustration. Turn with me real quick to 2 Timothy. I told you I was going to use my extra time, so here it comes. 2 Timothy 1.5, it says this. Paul is speaking to Timothy, and he says, For I am mindful of the sincere faith in you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am sure is in you as well. Hallelujah. Amen. Right? All three in the first chair. Timothy, his mom, and his grandmother. The only thing that concerns me is, where's dad? Where's grandpa? In that whole Dads, we need to step up. So since this parenting thing is, is a joint effort, in, at least in a home where there's mom and a dad, uh, you may be parenting by yourself, and that's got to be the hardest thing to do. I know for me as a dad, when, my, when Debbie would go away for a night or two or the weekend, it's like, yeah, I'm on my own. Pizza in the front of the TV. No, I'm just joking. Never did that, Debbie. Never did that. So Debbie and I talked, and uh, we came up with eight things, and I'm not going to have time to do all eight of these as well as I'd like, but we came up with eight principles Eight things that we would like to encourage you to think about when it comes to raising first-chair Christians, first-chair children. Eight things. If I had time, we could probably put more. And the first one is this. Grow in respect to your faith. Mom and dad, grow in respect to your faith. Allow the gospel to transform your thinking and your behavior so that it is real to you. It works for you. I'm telling you, when my faith does not work for me, my kids are looking at it and go, that's your God. That doesn't mean I don't make mistakes. But live it yourself. Allow it to transform you, grow you, change the knowledge that you have and the lack of wisdom so that you can lead your children to the same place in their life. Second, pray for your kids. Until they're dead, don't stop praying for them. I heard a sermon just recently, and I loved it. He said, no hazy prayers, no crazy prayers, no lazy prayers. I thought, man, <laughs> he nailed it. You know, uh, pray specifically, not hazy. What is it that I need to be praying for, for my children? Pray according to God's will, not crazy prayers. Pray fervently, consistently, and biblically, not lazy prayers. I have prayers that I prayed for my daughter through all of her stages of life to the very man that she married. I pray for her today as a mother and as a wife. I have prayers that I prayed for my boys and that I continue to pray for my boys, for my two boys that are raising children themselves and for my single son, that I pray for them. And now I have 11 grandchildren. And I have prayers. I, I, I love to pray Scripture. So I have chosen Scripture that fits with, with each of my children. And, and, and I pray Scripture for them. I've got a long list of prayers that I pray from Scripture for my grandchildren. Pray for your children and your grandchildren. Because there's different life struggles, different seasons for them, things that they go through. Third thing is give them a biblical worldview. Confront the false view that is being delivered to your kids through the media, through secular education, through psychology, and through the culture. Bad ideas lead to bad things. Good ideas lead to good things. And we must constantly be in the process of confronting those bad ideas. A biblical worldview is rooted in the truth of the gospel and an accurate understanding of theology as I apply that. If you would just think of it as a tree. I love the I use tree illustration in lots of different ways. To think of it as a tree, you've got the branches of the tree and the branches of the tree represent all the different schools of thought like sociology and psychology and anthropology and biology, and medical ethics, sexuality, gender roles, identity, family, all those kind of questions are those branches that are out there. And God's Word addresses every single one of those areas. And He gives us instruction and in, in ways to live life at the roots of that tree. This, this spring, Debbie and I had to transplant some of our uh, bushes in front. and It was amazing when I pulled it up. They hadn't gotten any bigger than this. That's not a good sign. If you've got a tree that only has roots that are this little, you know, you're, you're in big trouble, right? You want oak tree type roots, you know, the ones that go deep. And whatever is feeding those roots is what's going to produce your thinking and understanding up here in the, in the branches. It's going to impact the branches and the fruit. The roots impact the fruit. What are you feeding your kids? Because we know what the world is feeding our kids. What are you feeding your kids to bring strong and healthy uh, fruit in their lives? To have a biblical world means that you view everything in life through the lens of Scripture. Not culture, not media, not modern psychology, God's Word informs us of how we are to think in regard to each of those areas. I don't usually push books, but I want to give you a couple couple of thoughts here on a couple of books. One of these is uh, Natasha Crane, and I'll leave these up here. You can come look at them. She's got three books. I guess I gave one. I give books away a lot, lot, and so I don't have the third one. But uh, Keeping Your Kids on God's Side, it's uh, 40 Conversations to Help Them Build a Lasting Faith. Talking to your kids about God, uh, 30 conversations every parent must have uh, with their children. And then another one that she's got is uh, talking with your kids about Jesus, 30 conversations every parent must have. If you don't have a biblical worldview, if you'll teach this to your kids, you'll grow in your biblical worldview and understanding uh, with your kids. And then a third one, if you've got teenagers, The Secret Battle of Ideas About God by Jeff Myers, another good book to help you look through and and overcome the outbreak of five fatal worldviews that are there. And so just give your kids a biblical worldview. If you want more information about that, my wife taught biblical worldview at Trinity Christian School for years uh, to junior uh, high-age kids. And I'll tell you what, it is critical that we give our kids a biblical worldview. I'm going to have to speed up here. fourth one is to train your kids. Train your children. Train their thinking train their emotions, yes, I said emotions, and train their behavior. I love what Dr. uh, John Roseman said. He's the author of uh, Parenting by the Book, and he says this, secular human psychology has really hurt our society when it comes to training children. Behavior modification began in the 60s and uh, was implemented that the discipline of children was all about their behavior. Previously, before cycle babble reigned in America, child rearing, America, uh, in, reigned in American child rearing, it was discovered. Oh, I'm sorry, I got way off here. I'm trying to hurry too fast. Let me go back. Previously, before cycle babble reigned in American child rearing, it was generally understood that discipline was needed to teach children not only to behave correctly, but also to think and emote correctly. In fact, proper behavior is nothing more than an indication of of proper thinking and emotional restraint. So train your children in their thinking. That's the first one. I'm hoping that this summer seminar that we're doing on parenting will give you great ideas of how to help them think biblically, to think rightly, and that that thinking impacts how they feel and and how they feel impacts how they uh, behave. Can you tell... Uh, you can tell how a child is thinking based on what he is saying. You can tell if he's not thinking about himself the way God does about himself. You can tell if he is thinking wrongly about others by the way he speaks and treats them. You can tell that he is thinking wrongly by, uh, about his role in the family by the way he speaks and responds to his parents and his siblings. All these are intentional training that uh, has to occur in their thinking emotions yes you can train a child's emotions there again we've allowed society to tell us that we are to give such attention to the emotions but emotions are god-given and they serve an important purpose in our lives and and to to validate every emotion that a child has is actually destructive in their lives children are a soapbox a soapbox factory of emotions they have sinful thinking, selfishness, manipulation, a desire to cause disruption, and inappropriate seeking of attention, focus on minor issues, just a dramatic overreaction to discipline. And you can train their emotions. You must train their emotions. It's kind of interesting. Uh, in, in, our, in our home, it's not unusual for our kids to hear us say, stop crying now. That's different than stop crying or I'll give you something to cry about. Okay. I had that dad, all right? But it's stop crying now. Change your attitude now. Hear a tone of my voice. Hey, that's a small issue. Stop talking about it. After I spank you, yes, we spanked, you will not scream or I will spank you again. I'm sorry that that doesn't sound fair. No more complaining about it. The bedroom door belongs to me. No more complaining. That bedroom door belongs to me. When you slam it, I'll take it off the hinges. And so I did. Okay? I know you're sad, but it's time for you to stop crying. See, you're acting jealous or you're acting unkind or you're acting impatient or you're acting rude. Love is a choice and the way you behave is a choice. And so I want to train my children to love well. In a healthy family, parents assume their rightful authority in a calm, decisive, rational, and intentional way. Don't raise your hand, but have you ever blown it? (laughs) But God placed you there as the authority. Authority is a good thing. And he he expects us to exercise it in a very calm and loving and clear way. I want to address the happiness cult real quick as well. We live in the happiness cult. It's all about my happiness. Uh, We no longer go on vacations or quit taking trips uh, just so that our kids would have fun. We would go on trips and we would have fun because I like to have fun. But we didn't make them the objects and their desire to have fun. Matter of fact, when they would go to a birthday party or they'd go to Sunday school or they'd go with some friends, we didn't say when they came back, did you have fun? Like fun is the ultimate thing. We didn't say that. We said, hey, were you kind to one another? Hey, were you able to influence other kids in their behavior? Were you a good example? Did you make someone feel included? Taking the focus off of fun and placing it on their responsibility. Well, I'm going to run out of time here. The third one is behavior, train their behavior. And much of that is more about training their thinking and their emotions. I would just encourage you that if you are, want more help in that area, find somebody who's training their kids well. Find somebody who's training their kids well that are coming alongside and helping children know how to walk properly. There, there, there's consistency involved in training. Uh, it, it, every time there's a consequence. In our house, you'd often hear uh, delayed obedience is disobedience. Delayed obedience is because I'm lazy and I'm not going to make you obey. That's what it really says. Scripture memory, the importance of Scripture memory. My kids read, memorized tons and tons of Scripture. Uh, they did Proverbs projects where they would take Proverbs and they would put them with the categories and, and learn Scripture that way. Root your children in the Word of God. Last four, real quick. Guard your child's heart until they can. Guard your children's heart until they can. Proverbs twenty three uh, 4.23, you know this. Above all else, guard your heart for it is the wellspring of life. That means if I'm going to guard my child's heart, I'm going, to, I'm going to have a lot to say about who they spend time with, what they're going to watch, and what the media sources are going to be in their lives. I'm going to be concerned about the conversations that they're having and what they're exposed to. I'm going to insert myself in there because God's placed me there as, a, as an authority in their life, and I must guard their heart until they're to a place where they're able to do that as well. Six, let your children do hard things. Now, well, let me say it differently. Make your children do hard things. God intended for us to work. He didn't create us to be lazy and sit in front of a TV or a gaming or the, the little uh, phone all day long. He called us to be workers and to be, not be a sluggard and lazy. Work to the point that they need a Sabbath rest. Seven, do ministry together as a family appropriate to the age one of the funnest things that we did as a family. When I quit going on mission trips by myself, and we started going as a family. We took seven family mission trips to Mexico. My youngest was three the first time we took him into Mexico. Sometimes you have to get over your fears and your inadequacies and your concerns and say, God, as a family, we're going to go do this. Maybe it's go serve down at the church under the bridge. Maybe it's going to a nursing home. I don't know what it is, but put your kids in ministry and service, not just here in the church, but do that as well. They need to see you doing ministry with them. And the last one, confront the lie that says that your kids need a good education so that they can get into a good college, so that they can get a good job, so that they can have a big house, so that they can live in a good neighborhood, so that they can give it to their kids also. Yes, we want our kids to have a good education. Yes, we want our kids to provide for their families. Yes, we want our kids to have a nice house. But I want them to be transformed by God's grace more. I want them to love and obey Christ more. I want them to serve Christ more. I want them to sacrifice for the crowds of Christ more. It's not just about our standard of living and our level of education. It's about that they are transformed by the grace of God that is transforming you in their lives. Let's pray. Father, I come to you this morning and it's it's difficult when we just throw out a whole bunch of ideas and a whole bunch of principles. But Father, I pray that today, more than anything else, that we would know where we sit in these chairs. And that we would realize that that impacts how we parent. Father, that impacts where we're going to move forward in our lives. And so, Father, I pray that we would see that clearly. And, Father, that we would move and make the changes, that we would read the books, that uh, that we would find others to mentor us and encourage us in our relationship with our kids for your glory and for your honor in Christ's name I pray as our practice uh, we're going to celebrate uh, communion together if you have your cup I'd